dirty night. Do you have a vacancy? Oh, we have 12 vacancies. 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. They, uh, they moved away the highway. Oh, I thought I'd gotten off the main road. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are now at episode 24, which is Erica's choice. Let's find out what she has selected. I chose a very little-known, little-seen <laughs> film called Psycho from 1960. And I'm sure I don't need to reiterate what the plot is, but I will anyway for the couple of people who haven't seen it. It's about a Phoenix secretary who steals $40,000 from her employer, goes on the run, and winds up at the Bates Motel. And it was directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Joseph Stefano from the Robert Block novel, and it stars Anthony Perkins, Janet Leigh, Vera Miles, John Gavin, and Martin Balsam. We don't usually mention it right up front, but I think it's so significant to this one that if you haven't seen the movie, which, like you mentioned, almost everyone has, I assume, but there could be budding cinephiles out there, young folks that have never come across it. If you haven't seen the movie, don't listen to this show before you watch the movie because we are going to cover it in explicit detail and I would hate to take away the joy of being manipulated like you are going to be. Because you, you might think that you know everything about it. Even if you haven't seen it, and I waited quite a long time to watch it, I knew in advance what some of the specific scare elements or plot twists were going to be and it still surprised me. And that's one of the reasons why I chose it, which I know we'll return to at the end of the podcast. So let's begin at the beginning, which is the amazing title sequence by Saul Bass, as he did many, many amazing title sequences, and the wonderful score that kicks in. So it's very unnerving to me, at least. The Bernard Herrmann score. We should mention his name as well, as prominent a figure as he is in this film and those odd horizontal lines and the breaking up of the typography what do you think this is supposed to evoke this music and the way these jarring shifting title sequence elements are cut together what mood does it put you in it sets my nerves on edge right away and watching as i mentioned that typography shift and shatter it's that sort of shattering of the psyche and also the title is psycho <laughs> you have to, it spoils a little bit of itself. A word in 1960 that was not freighted with nearly as much as it is in 2016. True. Also an interesting note being from 1960, they were well into the color film era by this point, yet Hitchcock shot this in black and white. It turns out it was a budget consideration primarily. The studio did not want to make this movie, and so Hitchcock bankrolled it himself, ended up making it for about $800,000, and opted to go with the much less expensive black and white processing and also using the crew that he was very familiar with from his television show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, that he knew well that they could work quickly. And the studio, in part at least, did not want to make the film because the book was thought to be, by them, 
so distasteful, so disturbing, vulgar, horrifying, violent. They were right. Maybe not two, but it definitely was all of those things. I have a lot to say throughout this thing about social mores and societal norms and smashing those to bits. That also is reflected in the title sequence to me, that slight shifting from side to side, not knowing what ground you're standing on, shades of gray, all that goes into what we're about to see. Okay, Poindexter. So from here, <laughs> we get the very, very cool Phoenix downtown cityscape. The thing I like the most about this pan across the cityscape of Phoenix is how sort of grubby it looks. It's decidedly non-glamorous as a locale. It's not Los Angeles. It's not New York. It's not Chicago. It's not North by Northwest of the previous year, mm -hmm. which had that beautiful New York cityscape, mm -hmm. those same kind of interesting building shots. It looks so different. It implies kind of a small time tawdriness, which I think is very specifically the mood they're trying to set up as you have that first moment of Hitchcock voyeurism where you move across the city and into the window where this illicit rendezvous is taking place. And the camera lets our eyes adjust first. First, it's very dark. And then the room opens up and we see Janet Lee in her white lingerie on the bed looking up at John Gavin, who is half-dressed as well. And the camera is constantly moving. So this is what I really watched for in this viewing. I've seen it a number of times, but it startled me how much the camera moves. And this was the first intimation of it. It's constantly shifting. Anytime any character moves even the slightest bit, the camera is moving with that movement. And so it really feels like it reflects the human eye and our vision. And we know the film is shot with 50 millimeter lenses, which most approximates human vision. The other thing that really struck me with this viewing is possibly by benefit of having such a beautiful format to watch it on, how much detail is captured in this black and white. I could see Janet Lee's moles and arm hair, and it's oddly alluring. And I guess that's the effect of making me that voyeur. Could be. It's a very gritty beginning, for sure. Which I think, again, is quite intentional. This film was so unlike anything else that came before it in its frank depiction of sexuality. Like you mentioned, they are two grown adults having a tryst, laying on the bed together without one foot on the floor, as the production code mandated. I don't think we can emphasize enough how much you didn't see this sort of thing. What a shock in all sorts of ways this was to the audience. To me, the entire film is built upon this notion of social norms and deviating from those norms. That is the big idea that is front and center in this film and it starts from the very beginning right here. This conversation that they have that is so concerned with propriety and respectability and how she is staking her claim for the life that she wants and it is a life of normalcy, quote unquote. She wants to have a husband, legitimate, above board, no more sneaking around. And she tells him that this is the last time, prophetically. <laughs> and she's talked about how she sees this existence that they've been having and how grimy it is to her. And Sam, yeah. who is John... <laughs> Sam, played by John Gavin in this, 
is very resistant to the idea and again predicated upon one of these norms which is he was married before he's divorced now he's paying alimony to this wife who is not around and so in his world he doesn't have the money to sustain a wife it drives me crazy as a 2016 viewer so much so that i just want to yell at the screen who cares about this i know 50 years as an audience member in between its original release and now makes a lot of difference, but it's, it gets under my skin in a completely different way than it would have gotten under the skin of the viewer in 1960. It still unsettles me because I find it infuriating that people are so rigidly bound by these rules and by these roles. So it's good to see that they are undermined almost right away. A note to that about... 15 years ago, a friend of mine was talking about her cousin who had been engaged to her boyfriend for something like a decade at that point. Mm. And they hadn't gotten married because they didn't have enough money to buy a house. They were evidently saving up enough, not just for a down payment, but to buy it outright. And for me, that just seemed like the most ridiculous thing I had ever heard. That struck me as some kind of Kathy, the comic strip based <laughs> reasons for not getting married. This, what are you talking about? They had enough money to sustain two independent households. Yes. Renting yeah, or the whatever. The whole thing they were seemed doing. like complete made up BS to me. Somebody was lying to somebody else or themselves. <laughs> so even then, there had to be somebody in the audience saying, come on, mm. are you just trying to get out of this? About Sam not wanting to get married. You think that's where? That's what I originally thought. The one other thing that was said in this whole sequence that is profoundly disturbing to me, and it is very much a product of 1960, when she's mentioning the respectability and you can come over and have dinner with my sister, with the lights on, she says, we'll boil a steak. The first indication <laughs> that she is an amoral monster. We'll boil a steak. I don't eat meat, so how are you supposed to make a steak? She's a savage. Okay. You don't boil a good piece of meat. So then Sam is left to contemplate the culinary massacre that may be taking place. <laughs> and she announces she's got to go. She's late for work. So this is also middle of the day, Trist, which you always know is the dirtiest kind. Mm -hmm. So she gets redressed, heads out the door. In her sparkling white outfit. Yes. And another note about this, uh, uh, something that kept reoccurring to me in the course of watching this, how long the central scenes are. Mm -hmm. And this is quite a long scene. It goes on for a very long time. So while the camera is constantly moving, this is not jerky, quick cutting. No. And like you say, almost all of the central scenes are like this throughout the film, with the exception of maybe one or two expository scenes with Vera Miles near the two-thirds mark. The scenes really give the actors time to work off of each other and let this dialogue unfold. Nothing is rushed aside from the shower scene, obviously, that 77 cuts in under three minutes total, I think, for that sequence beginning to end. And that is the only time you see such frenetic editing or camera activity. And so Marion is back at the office, this real estate office that she works at in, I'm assuming, downtown Phoenix at mm -hmm. this point. And we see uh, Patricia Hitchcock, Pat Hitchcock, who was Alfred Hitchcock's daughter. I cannot stand Pat Hitchcock. I can't stand her. I'm sure she's a lovely human being. I cannot stand watching her face, and I can't stand looking at her chunky fingers. 
Are you finger shaming Pat Hitchcock? I guess so. I think that she was great in this. I like her in Strangers on a Train, too. She's so annoying. What characteristics in particular, aside from her terrible Vienna sausage-like fingers, what personality issues do you have with Patricia Hitchcock? I don't like it in any character ever when someone thinks that they're more fascinating than they are. Oh. I don't like that smarmy, don't you want to go out with me? And that's (laughs) what she excelled at playing in a few of these films. Mm -hmm. Again, a lovely human being, I'm sure. Good actress. I just can't stand the sight of her in this and she immediately kicks in with that really morally repugnant story about getting tranquilizers on her wedding night oh and her husband being so upset by it if he knew here we are again with the societal norms the whole mother's little helper aspect of the doctor doling out prescription medicine and that inherently women are not supposed to enjoy sexual pleasure which we just saw marion the complete opposite of that. But we're expected to believe that she should choose a coma rather than sex. It says in my notes, tranquilizers are a real hoot. (laughs) Yeah, so, okay, anyway, sorry. Moving on from my Pat Hitchcock rant, we learn an important piece of information, which is that Marion's sister, Lila, is gone for the weekend to Tucson. So Marion is on her own. And this is the point when her boss and this buyer for this piece of land come into the office. Talk about repugnant. A real sleazeball. A real smoothie. Super gross. The buyer, that is. The boss is kind of a milk toast. Mm. Again, another stereotype of 60s American maleness. And... We see two aspects of that, one being the boss, as we mentioned. The buyer is that aspect of, I'm rich, and I can buy happiness, as he talks about, which means, uh, lady, I can buy you. Not just buy happiness, but buy it in the most crass and vulgar and conspicuous way. There is nothing subtle or charming he thinks there is. Definitely. Which is what makes him ten times worse. But there's nothing subtle or charming or vaguely interesting about this type of person. And money equals good in this scenario. Money is all things that are good and acceptable. And of course, Pat Hitchcock has to jump in with, oh, he would have hit on me, but he must have seen my wedding ring. Shut up. (laughs) So clearly, this guy's got it coming. (laughs) Murder? No, fraud. We'll just leave it at fraud for this one. So as shot from Marion's point of view, he's looming and leering and leching and is just gross. And he's propositioning her in so many words while he's also talking about his young daughter who is getting married as well. And this made me think about a moment that you and I shared a couple of days ago when we were at a restaurant. And it was obvious that there are certain people there who hung out there. They came there in the afternoons and hung out in the bar section. And I watched a couple of these older men, men of a certain age, treat specifically the female employees as a daughter and a sex object at the same time. Yeah, it was really peculiar. I say peculiar. Apparently not at all uncommon. I guess. Peculiar to me. Yeah. Something I would not do. Thank goodness. Clearly, 
It's been an archetype since at least 1960. Possibly he invented it. Well, he's throwing <laughs> around this $40,000 in cash that he's going to use to buy this piece of property for his daughter. And Marion starts twirling her internal mustache, possibly at this point. I think a little spark goes off, a little wheel starts to turn. Well, she excuses herself, citing a headache, asking if she could go home early. Her boss tells her to take this to the bank. He doesn't want it in the office over the weekend. Deposit this. Let's get it out of here. We'll get a check from him on Monday and give this money back. She leaves early, ostensibly to go do that and go rest. By the time we cut to her bedroom, the wheel is not just turning. It is going full blast because the money is still in her possession quite clearly. It's the first thing we're shown. And the second thing we're shown is she is now in a full black outfit making the change from the angelic to the demonic. And not just outfit, still in her lingerie, or I'm sorry, again in her lingerie. Mm -hmm. So in this really startling black lingerie, and we keep cutting back to the cash envelope on top of the bed, and we keep seeing it, and we keep seeing it, and she handles it a lot. And again, this is where I started to see or reflect on that floating camera. Even the slightest movements when she bends over to look into her purse, stands back up, moves the envelope around, shifts it, the camera captures all of this. It is not a static shot. It is almost floating, hovering with her, and it's pursuing these darker angles to me. The thing I noticed most about this was how much exposition they were packing in with no dialogue. The little things that you instinctively understand without it having to be spelled out. The money this consideration that she's doing, how something as simple as suitcase equals leaving, you don't have to be explicitly told these things. There was a real economy in that scene that indicated everything we needed to know in just a few seconds. There's the mini attache case that has the important documents. We can't see exactly what they are, but our mind fills in that blank. Sure. Things she cannot live without. So she's gathering all this stuff, obviously, to hit the road. The other thing that I was thinking of while we were watching this particular scene is how most crimes, I think, are not planned. Crimes of opportunity. Crimes of passion. How many people that are actually in prison would have thought when they woke up that day that by the end of the day, I'm going to have done this thing? I would say the vast majority of them had not planned on it. Career criminals, professionals, sure, but the vast majority of everyday folk who end up in trouble for doing things like this spur of the moment, completely irrational, which also is therefore why they're almost always caught. And we learn in just a few moments that she has worked at that company for 10 years. She has been having this affair with Sam. None of these things are short. She didn't just blow into town. She's not a, a transient almost. She's not flighty. But there are these circumstances that are coming to a head. Is she the embodiment of the last person you suspect? I guess I have to think back to the first time I saw it. Again, I knew the big points. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the little points. So it's possible at any moment she could still just go to the bank. She's not set up as an evil, mean, calculating person, even though I mentioned the wheels turn. Mm -hmm. This is circumstance-driven. But clearly, in the minds of a 1960 audience... There is a certain moral flexibility in this person who can engage in this sort of lunchtime rendezvous. So, uh, have sex with both feet off the floor during the day equals 
crime later on. Who knows? Slippery well, slope, I guess, you think you might be on. If you are someone who would engage in this sort of tawdry behavior, certainly don't dangle $40,000 cash in front of you on the weekend that your sister's out of town. <laughs> right. And it's also not as if it was uh, nuns and orphanage fun money. It's the grossest guy in the world waving it in your face. He's got it coming, which comes up again in voiceover a little bit later. We now see Marion in her car driving through the city. So again, that's why I wasn't entirely sure she could have been on her way to the bank at that point. So she's not too far gone, mm. pun intended. No, she hasn't passed the last chance to veer off into the bank parking lot. But again, like we were talking about, the economy of the symbols that we were shown in that scene certainly lead me to believe that that's not where she's on her way to. Yes. So she is driving and uh, she comes to the stoplight and we get that first little heart stopper where her boss actually walks right in front of the car, which is a great moment. So she leaves town with this feeling in the pit of her stomach now, the seed that's been planted after seeing her boss, she's already uncomfortable, more so than she was already, with what she's done. She drives for a while into the night, gets tired, pulls over to sleep, and then we find ourselves the next morning. And a police car stops. We now see Marion's point of view, and the police officer is in her window, taking up the entire screen. And she moves quickly as if to drive away with him standing there without having said anything. She's startled, as you might be, if you are disoriented, you pulled over to sleep, and you find someone staring in your window. But then the flight instinct is what gives the police officer the most pause. And she starts to become so cagey and practically openly hostile to the policeman. So she is being the most suspicious person in the universe. And specifically asks... Am I acting as if there's something wrong? Well, yes, you are. Very specifically, you are acting like a crazy thief. It's coming off of you in waves, so let's talk a little bit more. The one thing I found most interesting about their exchange that entire time, if you go back and look, any time that she is engaged in conversation directly with the police officer, she does not blink. Her eyes are wide open. Deer in the headlights, you would say in this case, but it foreshadows another moment coming up not too far from now with another unblinking eye. What was kind of odd to me, just a passing moment, that he asks for her license, takes it, looks at it, hands it back to her, and she leaves without saying anything. Again, <laughs> thinking about how to not leave with big, flashing, suspicious lights. You might have wanted to end that conversation a little bit, but she takes off. And as she leaves, she can see in her rearview mirror that he is following her. And her heart is in her throat, and she's not breathing. And then she sees he takes the turn off for another city. She soon takes one herself with the intention of ditching this car. She pulls up to a dealership, a Ford dealership. Not a coincidence, because Ford-sponsored Alfred Hitchcock presents, and therefore every car in the film was a Ford because of that sponsorship, with the exception of Alfred Hitchcock's Cadillac that drives by twice on the street in that scene with the car dealership. Personally, I would not be able to spot at that period a Cadillac from a Ford, but 
As big not, a Top not, Gear fan as you are? Not 1960s American stuff. Mm. I, I have no, no idea. And really, I just like to drive fast, and I like there to be challenges. And I like to drive in the most convoluted manner I possibly can. I can vouch for that. I swear to God, Women. I never... No. Lady drivers. No. Much I'm like... I'm just kidding. Much, I'm just kidding. I, I know you don't think I, that at all. I understand. But much <laughs> like the transvestite issue with Norman... I was on the edge of my seat before you got to that part. I didn't know where you were going to go with this. Here's where I'm going with this. The way he is not trying to be all women, but trying to be one specific woman, this issue with you and the route that you choose to take, which to you seems the most logical and straightest shot. I didn't say logical or straightest. Believe me, I've driven with a lot of people, and it is exclusive to you. I've driven with male and female drivers. This is just you. Well, much like uh, later on in the film when Simon Oakland says in response to, oh, he's a transvestite, wait a second. I never claim to be logical or the straightest. Well, you can take that however you want to take that. Anyway, back to the movie. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know where. Okay. She's trying to get this deal to exchange her car Mm -hmm. to get a new one. High pressuring plates. the salesman to get rid of this Arizona plated car from one with California plates, which is where she is now. Again, acting as if she's got dead bodies in the trunk. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so she sets out to close this deal as weirdly and quickly as she can. I like that she stops to grab a paper, I assume looking for any mention of her crime. She's flipping through the pages, doesn't see something, or so we assume. So it hasn't hit the paper, it hasn't hit the news just yet. In addition to looking for her crime in the newspaper, it also is a nice device to get the paper into the story because it comes in handy a little bit down the road. She basically pops a wheelie as she speeds away as the police officer who's been observing from across the street comes up to talk with the salesman, which is the voiceover you now hear indicating that they both agree, yes, this lady is up to something. So she has imagined what this cop and the salesman might be surmising about her behavior, and she starts to think about the other people in her life. So she imagines what her boss might be saying, what Pat Hitchcock might be saying, what this buyer specifically is going to say. Cassidy is his name. Cassidy. And it's now... We've gone from twilight to nighttime at this point. It is Cassidy's part of that voiceover sequence when he is talking about how he is going to get his money back or take it out of her fine, soft flesh that, for the first time, the anxiety goes away in her face and this very pleased expression comes across with this slight rictus grin. Again, the guy had it coming. People like that who are going to behave that way and be such conspicuous consumers... And so crude, I have no sympathy for him. And that little smile of pleasure was for me the, uh, definitely the, you had it coming and also try it, buddy. (laughs) At this point, it starts to rain. A deluge begins. And what's that flashing off in the distance in between the movement of the wipers, flashing like a beacon, you have the sign for the Bates Motel. Right before that, it's one of the first uses that we'll see a few more times in the film of increasingly tight Mm close-ups. So it starts at sort of head and shoulders and then closer and then closer. So it's these three 
increasingly claustrophobic shots. Kind of James Whale-ish in execution in the mm. way he introduced his Frankenstein's monster. I will take your word for it. James Whale was fond of that move. I think we talked about it in the Old Dark House episode, how when he introduces a prominent character, it's shot, closer shot, closer shot still. And I remember it from that, but I can't speak to it as much in Frankenstein, so I will leave you to be the expert in that. Oh, it definitely happens in more than one of his films. It's obviously an underlining device, and it works the same way here. And to go back to what you mentioned, we first see the Bates Motel sign, and the entire shot is at an angle, which is really fascinating. And driving up to it, we're still at an angle. Can you remember a time in your life when you were not aware of what the Bates Motel implied? Absolutely not, which is why I said I have known what these secrets are in this film longer than I have been watching the film. So she pulls into the parking lot of this dilapidated motor lodge with the imposing silhouette of the Bates home up on the hill with the just as imposing silhouette of Mrs. Bates in the window. She honks, Norman runs down to help her. And there's where we have the scene that we opened with, which I thought was a really interesting choice of words, Dirty Night. That's why I picked this one to do our playlet introduction with. I love that part. Is it just that it exposes his pathology right away? The very first word he says. It's so much fun to hear unexpected words coming out of that mouth. Mm -hmm. And for him to also deliver without guile. Mm -hmm. So 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. She signs in as Marie Samuels in the register. And he is hovering over the board that has all of the keys for all of the rooms. And it's that moment of when I started to think more about it later, realizing how close escape is. Mm, similar to the vanishing. There are constantly open doors. Mm -hmm. The car is 10 feet away, probably. He could choose room three. He chooses room one. He does hesitate. He does. But then he very specifically chooses room one. I still think you're right. Escape is possible. The scene coming up where escape is no longer possible is one of my favorites. To watch him play that where you see that decision be made. But right now... As it stands, even having chosen this specific room right next to the office, I think she still has a chance. It's also interesting when you talk about just how close escape is. It is specifically mentioned that she's only 10 to 15 miles from Fairvale. Which is where Sam lives. Where she's headed. So had she gone 15 more minutes. He says there's a diner right down the road. All of these opportunities, all of these chances... And she doesn't take them right now. She follows Norman into room one. I don't think enough can possibly ever be said about how excellent Anthony Perkins is in this. What gets lost is how incredibly charming and handsome and boyish. And when he points out uh, the bathroom over there and is and how he so can't shy. Say bathroom. It's fascinating, which is why I'm going to say, again, what we talked about for just a moment at the beginning. You might think that you know all of the beats in this film, and you have no idea. He's an interesting choice, because if you are working strictly from the text of the novel, he is not the person you think of. To me, I would have cast Dennis France. That screams serial killer. <laughs> exactly. Grubby, gross, sweaty, 
serial killer. Or Carl from Aquatine Hunger Force. (laughs) I think Dennis France is the model for that character. Could have been. No offense to Dennis France. I'm sure he's a wonderful human being. Do you hate his sausage fingers also? No. Is he dead now, actually, now that I say that? (laughs) Lovely human being, great actor. I'm going to look. Dennis France, not dead, and coincidentally, shares my birthday. Whoa. Never saw NYPD Blue. I'm sure he was great on it. I love him in all the De Palma stuff. In which he's appropriately sleazy and disgusting. Well, how did we... Oh, yeah. If you were casting a gross serial killer, a la the novel treatment of Norman... Just going by the physical characteristics, as described in the book, middle-aged, paunchy, alcoholic loser, really unpleasant. Nothing appealing, nothing charming. And I think it's a brilliant choice for one very specific reason, which is coming up when they have the meal together, when he brings her a sandwich... There's no way that she is going to sit in that room and have this conversation where they are prying and prodding and trying to get into one another to see what exactly is going on here. They do not have that connection. They do not have this conversation if this is a wholly unappealing, much older man. Anthony Perkins is quite tall, but without being imposing. He's very lean, very Mm bird-like is a motif that gets reused in this. But he's beautiful. I think the thing that makes it work so well, in addition to his physical characteristics, is you can see a real nimble intelligence in his eyes. And it exhibits itself in a variety of ways. In just his basic curiosity about the world. In his grasp of, again, these social norms. In... Ways that are darker, like how cunning he is, specifically when he needs to be. It's really fascinating to see all of those facets of that intelligence come into play. And in this beginning sort of introduction, he is open without being pushy. He's inviting without being pushy. He almost hesitates to even go into the room with her. He suggests instead of having dinner at the house let's do it in the office which would for the rest of us suggest again a means of escape it's a blast to watch him working with someone else janet lee in this case with martin balsam later and the difference between the two even john gavin who is a little bit wooden compared to the other two there's not as much interesting happening in terms of a relationship dynamic probably because martin balsam is a much better actor than John Gavin, at least to me. Jeez, it's the Pat Hitchcock, Dennis Franz, John Gavin, Hitler show. (laughs) And I think finally as well, he made Janet Leigh the best that she could be Mm -hmm. in this too. She's truly great in this. He makes an offer of dinner and goes up to the house to retrieve it, which gives her the opportunity to put this $40,000 into the newspaper. I don't mean to keep beating this dead horse, but I think, again, about how close escape is and how close the evil is on the other side. It's just a door into nothing. It's just a flimsy motel room door, and it makes me think about you talking about being so frightened by the town that dreaded sundown when you realize... Oh, there's nothing between Don Wells and that burlap-masked killer except the screen, screen door, door. Mm. and it's just a, a step into nothingness quite possibly but for the moment again it's that farce of being normal so she 
closes her room door and she sets again to move the money almost kind of obsessively mm-hmm. around, repackage it in the newspaper, move it into the suitcase. And she starts to hear that voice in the distance. The argument with Norman and mother. And this older woman is yelling these ugly things at him and talking about her as well. She's not going to have her in the house. She's really haranguing him. And I think about the phrase ugly appetites Mm -hmm. that she used. So we've already had dirty and we've had ugly. These words that you maybe don't hear quite as much in films of mainstream American cinema at the time. Not in this context anyway. I think it's interesting that she's still moving that money around and she is still intent on deviating from the norm. She is still intent at this point on breaking out of this role that has been ascribed to her and using this money as a stake for the new life that she wants her way. Norman returns with the sandwiches, or with a sandwich for her. He opts not to eat. And he invites her into the office because it seems improper to have the meal in her room. And there's that lovely moment where he steps forward and then steps back. I love how often in this, Norman is shot in doorways. These rigid, constructed roles where you are not to move outside of the prescribed area that you are supposed to occupy. If you watch Norman, at least on four separate occasions, there are instances where he is shot framed in a doorway after or during a significant event where you can tell he is so rigidly bound up and it's just very subtly communicated to us because you don't see all the other characters portrayed that way. You see them moving throughout open rooms, but very often you see Norman photographed through the structure of a doorway as if he is caught between these things. And at this point, which will shift later, he is still being well lit So we see most all of his face, or he's in either three-quarter profile or looking full-on into the screen. And again, that will shift. But this is that quite long scene that is most often quoted, some specific lines in here, where they really get into what you had mentioned, probing into each other. Mm -hmm. The best scene, my favorite scene. It's a wonderful scene. For a number of reasons. You mentioned when we were watching it how the camera observed them from varying vantage points throughout this. And I think that, to me, indicates the very probing nature of the conversation. How they are each looking for a way into each other. So it's not just the same two shots of Norman, Marion, Norman, Marion, back and forth, back and forth. Often throughout the scene, the camera is moved just slightly from the position that it was in the previous time it looked at that character. It will be straight on or slightly below, then slightly above, and then in a different angle. It's, again, constantly moving, and all of these different angles do something. This is a problem I have with some films of a more modern nature, that it feels like the cinematography does not further the story Mm -hmm. or serve any purpose but to just put me on edge, I guess, or make me angry not let me into the character, and this is very specific. You mentioned several (laughs) pivotal and really funny in retrospect lines. Hitchcock was having a ball with this scene, teasing out little things that are soon to come into play. Janet Lee says, I caused you some trouble, intimating that she heard the argument. She's not quite herself today, Norman says. I really respond to, other than these 
really iconic lines at this point. I respond to the points at which he shows so much intelligence and sense of understanding her nature, like when he talks about that she's clearly never had an empty moment in her life. Mm. It's such an amazing observation for someone you've known for five minutes. Well, we talk about this all the time, how to me, it seems, if you just pay the slightest bit of attention, people tell you everything that there is to tell about themselves. It doesn't take much if you are observant to understand an awful lot about a person in just a few minutes of conversation. I'm often surprised at how people don't see these things. I guess it didn't strike me as such a a wry observation because it seemed like, oh, of course, if you pay attention, people tell you things about themselves. What makes it so interesting to me is he lives in Nowheresville. He has so few people coming in. He has no social circle. So where was his opportunity to learn these things? Where was his opportunity to actually listen to other people? Good question. Because he is clearly the world's most sheltered homeschooler. <laughs> yep. Another of my favorite mentions that again comes into play down the road, that his hobby is stuffing things. And, and he I- stuffs birds because they're passive. Which again is fascinating to me. The choice of taxidermy period is fascinating to me and it seems but it suits his personality because it seems an effort to control. It seems an effort to be in charge of something even up to and beyond death. To exert the ultimate control which is to defy death and to keep a thing at least full of the illusion of life if not life itself. Well, I think nowadays that would be such a, again, huge signal of run. I mean, we're, we're so attuned now to think serial killer starting with torturing animals, which taxidermy isn't necessarily torture. I mean, mm. I guess unless they're alive. But everybody knows birds are gross. So <laughs> and terrifying. that doesn't bother me quite as much. He's actually quite proud of the hobby, it seems like. It's the one time that he exhibits some self-possession. That he's not in mother's shadow. It's his own thing. Mm -hmm. It's more than a hobby, he says. (laughs) Of course. He also says a boy's best friend is his mother. Yes. This is the section where he's talking about we step into our private traps. Again, an insightful comment about what he perceives her having done. And Marion follows that conversation by really urging him to get out of this situation. She's noticed in just a couple of minutes how toxic this is and just like how odd it is for us to watch and possibly audience members at the time to watch Sam and Marion not be able to get married through these sort of convoluted circumstances there's no reason why he can't leave ah but he makes a very explicit argument as to why he can't leave he tells the story of how she met a man that man died Specifically alluding to the fact that a son is a poor substitute for a lover. Again, hugely freighted with meaning. All of these things, we don't know that yet. We may begin to suspect. At this point, some of us have to be tugging at our collar and loosening (laughs) our tie and mopping our brow a little bit. She suggests, put her someplace. Marion says, put Mrs. Bates. Mm -hmm. And Norman does not take kindly to this suggestion. And he's clearly in distress about this 
idea of what is would ostensibly be putting her in an institution mm-hmm. or a madhouse, as he says. And so much distress that we as the audience assume he has some kind of firsthand knowledge. Yeah, it seems very clear that he's been in one of those places and could never do that to her. Which may be extremely ironic because if he was in one of those places, she did that to him. And he starts to fray a little bit at this point because mm-hmm. this is a really distressing turn to the conversation. And you can see Marion start to close up a little bit because it is getting a little either odd or too personal. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to watch this whole exchange as it ebbs and flows and as they parry and faint and dodge and then at times truly connect. And this is one of those things where the tide seems to recede and calm flows back in. And he says, we all go a little mad sometimes. Not to necessarily excuse her behavior, but because it's true. Because Marion has. And this realization dawns upon her. And this is the point at which she decides, I have to set things right. Norman has actually turned her back towards another one of those potential escape points. And so she clearly decides that she is going to go back to Phoenix mm-hmm. first thing in the morning. And I love this part again because he invites her, oh, stay, let's just keep talking, just talking. But he doesn't push when she clearly says, no, he doesn't keep going, which I love. Because the movie could have been over at this point. He could have shown his hand to be a raving lunatic and does not, which is why it's so scary. This is where she reveals her last name, her real last name, Crane, which he then goes to the register and sees that she wrote Marie Samuels and everything turns right here. This is the scene that I was referring to where escape is no longer an option because liars get punished. He takes a couple of furtive glances back toward the general direction of the house. You can see now that something is happening. At this point, if it's your first time through the movie, you're not exactly sure what. But he is obviously very preoccupied with Mother and what's going on up on the hill and whether or not what Mother told him about this woman is true. He closes the parlor door and he can clearly hear Marion in that adjacent room moving around undressing. And he removes one of the pictures. We actually didn't mention that in the first uh, moment ago talking about the scene in general, but there are some specific pictures up that are clearly of rape or women being attacked at some level. And he picks one of them up off the wall and looks through this hole that he has created and watches her go into the bathroom. And that profile of that eye, it's insane. You can see skin texture and all the lashes and moisture on the skin. It's, it's almost perverse. It's almost too lurid. And so we back up a little bit and we see his face and his jaw working. And he heads back up to the main house. He goes in and he hesitates there at the staircase. He does not go upstairs. He goes down that narrow hallway into Mm -hmm. what looks to be the kitchen to me. Probably the most prominent instance of this framing I was talking about because you have, he is bound and constricted by three layers. You have hallway into doorway into small space in the kitchen where he is completely diminished, it seems like. Norman has shrunk to the point of almost disappearing the way he's framed in that shot. And then we go back to Marion, back in her room. She's doing figures. She's 
ripping up paper and then flushing it, which was unbelievably startling to audiences at that point who had never seen a toilet on screen, let alone a flushing toilet. So it's shower time. And we see her leg veins, which also kind of startled me. It's time for her to physically and symbolically get clean. She has made this decision to turn for home, to try to repair the damage that she has done, and it's time to undergo this cleansing ritual. And then we get into arguably the most famous scene in film. One of, in Hitchcock's entire catalog, that's for sure. I can't think of a more iconic scene than this. She's in the shower, and it cuts to this camera angle where obviously something is going to move into the frame because she is pushed down to the bottom right of that corner, and you can see 80% of the screen is empty, soon to be filled by this looming shadow coming into the room. A person comes in the door. We see the arm go up. We see what looks to be a woman's hair. That's our understanding of this. Obviously, the implication is that it's mother, because there is no one else there. Definitely. And then we hear the music. The screeching Bernard Herrmann had all the violins play the same note, basically sawing on that thing to achieve that screeching, stabbing staccato. And Marion is stabbed to death. Not quickly. It takes a little while. She pulls the shower curtain down. She's hung over the edge of the tub. There's a moment right before that, when she reaches out. That is the most heartbreaking moment of the whole thing for me as opposed to Joseph Stefano, which we'll get to, there was a moment that was cut out that Gus Van Sant put back in so you can see the effect it would have had that Stefano thought was the most heartbreaking moment that showed what a fragile thing a human life is because it's shot from that God's eye view. We'll get to that. The moment for me that is the most heartbreaking is when she slumps against the wall, staring straight ahead, and just before she reaches out to grab the shower curtain... The look on her face that conveys, I cannot believe this happened to me. She's still aware enough to understand what has just gone on and how close she was to turning this around. And you see all that in her face. You see that supreme disappointment and disbelief that this thing has happened to me right now at this point when I was so close. The thing that Stefano fought for that did not make it into Hitchcock's film was there was supposed to be a final shot with Marion's body bent over the side of the tub that you saw from above that exposed her buttocks that the censors objected to so Hitchcock took it out. If you want to see what it would have looked like it's in Van Sant's version not that you want to subject yourself to that. I think it's interesting I'm a big Gus Van Sant fan it's completely unnecessary as a film But it's kind of interesting to compare and contrast, and if for no other reason, you get the one scene that was taken out of the original put back in. So that hand reaches out and hovers there for a moment, and then she pulls the shower curtain down with her. Slumps over the side, missing that shot, and we see her life drain away down the bathtub drain, which then dissolves into a beautiful shot of her unblinking eye, this time never to blink again. And the camera pans back out to the newspaper that is on the bedside table. And at that moment, 
we hit 49 minutes. Mm -hmm. Imagine everything that we've been through, everything as an audience building up this sort of false protagonist, this person that we think is going to be with us through this movie, dead 49 minutes. It must have been a huge shock, because not just your protagonist, but a star. This just did not happen. Revolutionary in that aspect. So it pans to the money, then it pans to the house through the window, and you hear Norman's reaction to seeing Mother covered in blood. He rushes down to see what has happened and finds Marion dead, slumped over the side of the bathtub. My favorite part, he covers his mouth at first. Such a great movement. He is shaken, completely horrified at what his mother has done, and he begins to clean up like the dutiful son. And this takes a while. This feels like real time. Can you think of another instance prior to Psycho where there is actual crime scene cleanup? That goes on this long, if at all. I can't recall a prominent example. Yeah, nothing jumps to mind. Again, you can see him. <laughs> He's got to think through every moment of this. Which reminds me, just as a general rule, never ever spray luminol or take a black light into a hotel room. You are never Gross, going to. Dennis France. You are never going to like the results of that. Trust me. Case in point. He does an excellent job, actually, at least on the surface, in terms of forensics as they would have been at that time. Mm -hmm. Cleats up every trace of her. You can see him thinking through every moment. You know, what would she have put here? What would she have put there? Going through drawers, going through the medicine cabinet, gathering up all of these things and backing up her car, which, again, is just feet away from where they are. He backs the car up so they can load everything and her into the trunk. Hitchcock can't help himself but to throw in this last little moment of suspense showing us that bundled newspaper, letting us think for just a minute Norman is going to miss this detail. Fortunately for him, he takes one last look, notices that it's there, takes it, and completely casually, nonchalantly throws $40,000 in the trunk of the car never to be seen again. Actually, right before that, another little trick of suspense. We see car lights go by mm. in the distance. <gasps> is he going to be caught? Nope, they just keep on going. I guess the money is not never to be seen again because they'll eventually retrieve that. But as far as we know, as an audience right now, this MacGuffin that we have been so worried about is completely inconsequential. Marion has been obsessively handling this money for the past 30 minutes or so, and it just gets tossed into the trunk. So Norman pulls the car around the motel, and we see the camera latch onto the license plate. And it's this fascinating unbroken shot that then when the camera pulls back, we realize we're seeing the car moving on its own, and Norman is pushing it into the swamp. And this was the single most disconcerting scene to me mm. when I watched it the first time. It's my second favorite scene after their conversation. I don't know if it was the TV that I was watching it on or something about the blackness of the swamp. It's almost nothingness. You can't actually tell what it is, or at least I couldn't right away because it's such a void. And then I realized, oh God, the car's going into the swamp. It looks like nothing else in the film up to or even after that, I guess. Yes. Well, we do return to the swamp at one point. Well, very From a later. different angle, though, mm -hmm. so it doesn't quite look the same. I know what you mean. We've talked about this before, how in certain specific movies there are these scenes that stick out because of either how they look 
and or what they convey. The one for me, very specifically, is the scene in Zodiac where the cab driver has been killed and the police are assembling to investigate that crime scene. How that movie swings on that scene for me and how it looks unlike everything else in the film. It's not exactly unnerving like this one was for you, but I feel a very distinct sea change right there. Well, it almost looks like it's another dimension. It's so oddly black and... It made my skin crawl looking at this, and I can't quite put my finger on what it was at that time that did that, but it was really disturbing to me. And we get another little trick where the car stops on its way fully into the swamp, and we all think, is it going to go in? And this is when we transfer all of our sympathies to Norman Bates, according to some critics, because we want that car to go in. He's being a good boy. He's trying to cover Mother's tracks. Absolutely. He didn't do anything. It's that sort of canny manipulation that Hitchcock was so good at. Because you really do feel yourself filled with the same anxiety that Norman would be filled with when that car stops sinking momentarily. And you feel the relief he feels when it begins to sink again. So Hitchcock must have been having the biggest laugh in the world at watching us, the audience, react this way. He pulled it off. What you don't realize at the time that you come to once all is said and done is that your allegiance has now been transferred to the murderer. It's the biggest trick he could play. You and I will occasionally have these conversations where we talk about contemporary movies being manipulative and how we mean that as a pejorative. But in this case, do you feel the same way or do you wholly admire this trick? Because he did it legitimately through a great script Fantastic acting, wonderful camera work and plotting, not through swells in music or dogs or babies. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) As far as I know. It is earned. Gotcha. And this is the first distinct break in the action, almost similar to what you would have seen on the television show. And it's kind of interesting. Again, I I looked at the time straight on one hour. Mm Mm-hmm. So we cut to Sam in his hardware store, and there's some annoying customer having some dumb conversation, and he's writing this letter to Marion indicating, let's get married. Let's do it. He's ready to throw off these shackles of expectation and subvert the norm and attempt to find happiness regardless of social station. And we see a cab pull up and Vera Miles who we learn is Lila, Marion's sister, arrives looking for Sam, specifically looking to see if Marion is there Mm -hmm. because no one has seen her. Quickly followed by Martin Balsam as the detective Arbogast. Arbogast. And actually, (laughs) Arbogast. He says Goss, so I get upset when everyone else in the movie says Arbogast. We find out that Sam is ignorant of anything that's going on. There's no plot between the lovers. Lila, I think, believes Sam, and Arbogast indicates to her that he might believe her story, given enough time and evidence, to which she replies, I don't care what you think about my story. She's very forthright and determined throughout this entire process, the second half of it being her and John Gavin playing detective to try to figure out what has happened to her sister. Because all she cares about is Marion. Mm-hmm. Everything else can be worked out and cleaned up. Police do not have to get involved. We can get it all fixed. But she wants to know where Marion is and make sure that she's safe. 
So Arbogast starts pounding the pavement, stopping at hotels to see if Marion has checked in, maybe is still there. Canvases the entire town, you get the impression. Not a big town, so it doesn't take very long, but this eventually brings him to the doorstep of the Bates Motel. And we see Norman on that porch eating candy corn. <laughs> and he gives that same 12 vacancies joke. He has not turned on the Bates Motel sign, which is really interesting. And he's quite friendly with Arbogast, and he's also quite observant. I'm just going to keep pronouncing it Arbogast because okay. I love the way the sheriff says it, so I'm sticking with that. Arbogast. Arbogast is a bulldog. He's very tenacious. He is not easily swayed or snowed. He's no dummy. Not at all. And I love the way that this conversation between Arbogast and Norman mirrors the one that Norman had with Marion earlier, where they're each playing a different angle and they're each a little ignorant of what the other one knows. Each one has a particular piece of information that they are holding back. And they're, again, doing this dodge and parry thing, trying to feel each other out. It comes to light that, yes, she has been here. And Norman is forced to admit she was here. She stayed one night. She left early the next day. And he slips up and he mentions, she might have fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother. And I love Martin Balsam in this for the short amount of time he's in the film. <laughs> and this is where I had mentioned earlier where the framing of Norman's profile starts to shift a little bit. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of shots where he's in semi-darkness. Mm -hmm. So half of his face is dark, half is light. There's a fascinating shot that I know is one of your favorites in this sequence. When they're examining the register together, he could have chosen to put the camera anywhere but he puts it up under Norman's chin with the entire screen seemingly turned sideways. And you don't see Martin Balsam in the shot. You don't see the register that they're looking at in the shot. You just see Norman doing this bizarre craning of his neck across the screen. What did that indicate to you? Why do you think they made such an odd choice to frame him that way? I don't know if it's reptilian or he's almost able, the camera suggests to sort of oddly shape his body into being this not quite human person or if it's more emphasizing how bird-like he is and how long his neck is i'm inclined to think the bird thing obviously since they have been leaning on that imagery so heavily up to now that was the first thing that i thought of. i love that shot i love norman's minor stutter right before it and Again, watch the camera, the angle slightly below, then level, then slightly above, and then to the side. It's always moving. And he stutters again on the word invalid, mm. which is pretty fascinating. Arbogast asks to talk to Mother, since she obviously met Marion, according to Norman. Norman denies him access to Mother, and Arbogast doesn't push the issue. He goes away. And I love the scene where... He is pulling out, and you see his lights move away, and you see Norman sitting on the windowsill in front of the office, very pleased with himself, as if this is a big game. Right before that, though, right before Arbogast leaves, he starts to go in the other direction as if towards the house, and he turns around to see Norman walking down to put the linens in the other rooms, mm -hmm. and you see him pause at one but go past. Sets off his... Spidey sense, essentially. It does. Something is not quite right. There is more to follow up on here. So Arbogast checks in by payphone with Lila, and he really thinks he's onto something. He's not totally satisfied. He's going to go back and see what this mother knows. There's a lot of exposition in a very short time here. 
He conveys to Lila all of this important information. Marion was here. He thinks that Sam is in the clear. Norman has a mother that is alive, first of all, very important, and that met Marion. And he is not satisfied. He has a weird feeling he's going back to check it out, which he does, unfortunately. And we see Norman first uh, still on the porch of the motel when Arbogast's car comes back up. And he clearly ducks out of sight. So Arbogast hasn't seen him at this point. And he then knows it's time to check out the house. So we follow him up again in those house shots closer profile of Arbogast house shot back to him tighter and tighter and tighter and we see him take off his hat which I thought was another really cool choice that he makes he walks slowly up that staircase and then the camera starts to move into that god perch overhead and at an angle and turned and here's where we see mother for the second time all of a sudden she is upon him savagely attacks him huge butcher knife again puts this vicious cut across his face, which causes him to stumble backwards down the stairs. And when he lands at the foot of the stairs, it becomes a frenzied attack. Our last shot is seeing this woman on top of him, practically. Mm -hmm. We're now back to Lila and Sam, and it's three hours later. Clearly something is wrong. Arbogast would have been back by now. And we had talked about this a bit earlier. These scenes with Lila are all so short, and mm. it's in such stark contrast to those long key scenes of before. But these are very, very short. And Lila, again, is so determined, we've got to go to the motel. A lot of that had to do with the fact that Hitchcock was not at all invested in the Sam and Lila characters. Nor should he have been, it seems like. There's not that much. No, you know? Norman is obviously where it's at. Norman and, to a lesser degree, Marion, as the catalyst of this whole story, are where the really interesting things are happening. Sam and Lila are necessary to get to a resolution, but they do not at all add a new layer of depth or interest to the story. Vera Miles, though, I think makes the most of this, and she's really watchable. Mm -hmm. So as Sam is pulling up to the motel and yelling for Arbogast, we see, as you had mentioned, Norman is back at the swamp, just sort of staring into nothingness, really. Well, Norman is at the swamp for the second time, and now I am starting to get the impression as a viewer, maybe he's done this a few more times than I initially thought. Because he was really good at the cleanup. Mm -hmm. He was really careful. It comes out that that's a fact. But this is the first time, as an audience member, I began to feel it. Maybe he's a, an older hand at this than we think. He hears Sam yelling for Arbogast, but does not respond. So, fortunately for Sam doesn't see Sam, doesn't see what he's driving, doesn't see what he looks like, so that later when Sam and Lila come back, he doesn't recognize him. So Sam goes back to Lila and they decide they've got to go get the deputy sheriff. So we have the intro to the character who does your favorite pronunciation of Arbogast. Well, they go to see the sheriff and he fills in the background on the Bates family situation because they are insisting that Arbogast said he saw him Mrs. Bates and is going back to speak to her. Turns out, Mrs. Bates has been dead for 10 years. Specifically, there was a bad business out there, there about was. 10 years ago. And this bad business is a murder-suicide. And Norman found them dead together in bed. I love the way that's whispered. Again, social mores. And they say, you know, Norman Bates's mother has been dead and buried in this Greenlawn Cemetery 10 long years. And Sam says, I saw the mother in the window. Then who is this woman in the cemetery? 
Indeed. Let's go back to the house and find out. We're going to work all this out. We are now rocketing toward our conclusion. So Norman is back in the office. He goes into the house and he's talking to Mother and he's trying to get her to hide in the fruit cellar because things are happening out of his control. People are going to start coming now. I love the scene as he's walking up the stairs to go have this conversation. This is the first time that we see Norman actually move into the upper part of the house. And as he does so, he's shot from behind as he's walking up the stairs and you see him start to sway his hips a little bit. Is this him already beginning to take on the mother persona? And I was not canny enough to really notice that or remark on it. It's very subtle. You think so? I do. I don't think he's gone into caricature at this point. Or, I'm sorry, maybe not subtle. I don't think it's over the top. Okay. He doesn't go campy. No, it could be maybe that he's not shot from the front, so you're not seeing a facial expression as well. But to me, it was very obvious. Mm, Okay. But you hear the conversation, and the upshot of it is Norman is going to hide Mother in the fruit cellar. And there's that same shot when he carries her out of the room and down the stairs, the same exact shot as when she had killed Arbogast. It's confusing and disorienting because Hitchcock used three different voices for Mother's voice throughout the film, sometimes blending all three to keep you off balance, and he also represented her with different actors, including, in this case, a little person that Anthony Perkins is carrying down the stairs. So you're never quite able to get a fix on how big or small she is in relation to him, what her voice actually sounds like, because it takes on different characteristics depending on which actor is voicing it. And he carries her down the stairs. She's yelling the whole time. Tellingly, you see her leg move when he's carrying her. Do you or do you see it you very definitely, touch the, the staircase? You very definitely see that actress's leg move. And so, to me, Whoa. it gives me that shiver because I'm, what's, as a first-time viewer at least, what is going on? Because any theory you might have as to what is happening, something happens to undermine that theory shortly after. Well, and speaking of undermining theories, we jump ahead and Sam and Lila go to the local church to kind of intercept the sheriff first thing in the morning. And he says he's already been out to the motel. He saw the whole place. He talked to Norman. No mother. So, again, it's that expectation and then let down. Okay, well, maybe, uh, what do we know? But they both still want to go out there. Sam and Lila decide we're going to go out to the motel. I love the way that this conversation takes place in front of the church, similar to the way Hitchcock examined this theme in Shadow of a Doubt, where the evil, corrupt element burrows its way into small-town Americana. I love that he exploits that very specifically by setting this in front of what I assume may be the only church in town. And he's great at using national monuments in all of his films, and then using, like you said, these sort of local icons that are that are small-town monuments in very effective ways. So Sam and Lila take matters into their own hands. They head back to the motel, posing as man and wife. They check in, offering the explanation that the trip is 90% business and his boss will need to see that receipt, so it's an excuse for him to look at the ledger. He's also being a super big weirdo and drawing so much attention to himself, just <laughs> like Marion had done. It has to raise Norman's hackles at this point that something weird is going on. And he's also seen Lila 
against the car from the house and it's such an interesting thing so he sees what to me is hmm woman you can tell the way he's regarding them throughout this entire exchange and as they go to their room that he is wary of them they break away they get into their room and lila's first assertion is he's done something to her for this money so to them this money is still in play not knowing that it's of no consequence right now to anyone and they are going to go in room number one and look for proof of this and sam has that sort of passing realization huh no shower curtain that's weird and lila very conveniently finds the one scrap of paper that marion did not flush that has forty thousand written on it so clearly marion was there they knew that already though but this i guess does indicate that maybe norman knew about the money somehow And Lila still senses this old woman is the key to all of this, and she's got to get into that house. So while Sam is stalling Norman, Lila examines their respective rooms, I think, which is another of my favorite sequences. First, Mrs. Bates' room, where she finds this curious indention in the bed. Very deep. The groove of where the body would have been. And then in Norman's room... She finds this environment that seems to suggest that he is suspended somewhere between man and child. At the very least, very stunted growth. She does find one particular grown-up thing that I thought was interesting. A book with no title. And at some point in my life, I must have read that that was a thing at one point, that pornography would be bound like that with no title and people would know that at the time right an audience in 1960 would have clued into the fact that oh this book that she found with no writing on the spine that's one of those dirty books lila has surveyed the house hasn't found marion hasn't found any evidence of anything except their peculiar living situation she's coming downstairs in the meantime norman has subdued sam and is on his way running up to the house she sees him through the front door, and she goes to hide in the fruit cellar while Norman runs upstairs. She goes into one room. She sees a very old, small woman turned towards the wall, surmises that it's Mrs. Bates, goes to touch her, and the body moves around, and we see the horrible, desiccated corpse of this woman. Lila throws her arm back and screams, hitting the light, and that's when... Norman, in Mrs. Bates' clothing and wig, with the knife in his hand raised and a terrible rictus face, comes screaming through the door. Fortunately, Sam has recovered just in time to subdue and oddly undress Norman in the process of taking him down. So he saves Lila and brings an end to this entire situation. And I did not hear, but only learned of this later. Did you hear Norman say, I am Norma Bates? I couldn't make out exactly what he said. In retrospect, knowing that that's what it is, I clearly hear it now. I'll have to watch it again and pay particularly close attention to that. So the day is saved, and Simon Oakland, as a psychiatrist, is there to wrap it all up for us and explain to us what in the hell we have seen. He got the story from Mother. There's no more Norman. I would be curious to go back and see what the state of the art of psychiatry was in 1960 to see how dubious some of this is as an explanation of multiple personality disorder, 
schizophrenia, how many of those things actually apply and how, based on what we know now, how accurate or inaccurate some of this portrayal is. Didn't we just watch uh, Titty Cut Follies not too long ago, mm. which came after this, and I don't know, does that answer any of it for you? Not in this case in particular, I don't think. Questionable, mm-hmm. I think you could safely say, Okay. some of the assertions. But he explains that it was Norman that actually killed mother and lover, and he couldn't bear the crime of matricide, and so, much like with his other taxidermy, the illusion of life became what was important. The illusion that she was still alive, which he went as far as dressing in her clothing and speaking in her voice to preserve. This is a part that I actually really appreciated when one of the other functionaries in the room say, he's a transvestite. And the psychiatrist said, it's not exactly, not for sexual purposes, which to me seemed quite accurate. So it's not as though he's dressing up for some sort of gratification purposes. It's an actual persona. And it's very Spartan as well. I think there's a connotation that comes with transvestite that imagines it's for some sort of glorious beautification purpose. And it is not. It's simply a representation of who he is. Here's where the legacy of the movie gets kind of dicey. I have a lot of questions. First and foremost, I agree with you. And they're very explicit in his explanation of what this is. Norman is clearly not trying to be any woman, womanly. He's trying to be very specifically his mother. Exactly. It's not as though he believes he is a woman or that there's a woman in his body or he is identifying as a woman. It's identifying as his mother. The question that comes up for me, though... 50-odd years down the line is, regardless of their intent, the legacy of this has so inextricably linked in people's minds the notion of cross-dressing and a psychopath that you cannot separate the two. How much damage has been done in terms of people's perception of that choice based on the fact that this particular killer employed this particular technique to deal with his inability to process his matricide. I guess that's why I point that out as really appreciating that moment because I think a ton of damage has been done. And I heard even in reading someone's characterizing it as he's in drag. No, he's not in drag. Drag is something completely different. Mm -hmm. So let's not confuse the two. And I appreciate that the psychiatrist takes pains to note that it's not some sort of a perversion, mm-hmm. which I think other people take it to be, and especially of a sexual nature. Definitely. Even now, one of those instances where I hate watching a movie with an audience, because I guarantee that wherever we go for the rest of our lives, if we see this movie in a theater with an audience, there is going to be some dipshit out there that when that guy says, oh, he's a transvestite, they laugh. They chuckle because that to them is hilarious, which is ridiculous. I'm glad, like you mentioned, he specifically corrects him and says no. But invariably, there's going to be some ass in the audience that thinks that's funny. And I hope in my inarticulate way, I haven't also made a muddle of all of these words as well, like drag and transvestism and talking about why someone might want to dress as a woman as well. And so hopefully I haven't made matters worse. It's obviously not up to either one of us to say if this is transphobic, for instance. It doesn't read that way to me, 
I've seen several arguments that it is just because, like I said, of the legacy of it and the way that it has inextricably linked those images between killer and cross-dressing. But the interesting part of that question, I think, that we can knock about all day long is how much of that is the responsibility of the artist? Can you be responsible if you portray a thing a certain way and take great pains to explain it, for instance, but in the long run, if people, for instance, don't see the whole movie, only know certain aspects of it, can you be responsible for their misinterpretation of it? Even though you clearly delineate in the film, that's not what this was. This was to achieve a very specific effect that is outside of this realm because people will only see still photos or they might not be equipped to understand the difference. As an artist, how responsible are you for the way people interpret and misinterpret your work decades down the road? I think that that is in part why I actually wanted to do this episode because I think this is so rewatchable and that's the question that I have. Why is something rewatchable when you already know the larger twists or major plot elements? I've tried to say multiple times in this podcast, watch it even if you think you know what you're going to see, you don't know. Mm -hmm. You need to take it as a whole. It's exceptional. And I alluded to this earlier, I didn't see this until I was in my early 20s, actually. And I knew of it forever. Mm -hmm. You asked me, how long have you known about these things? You, the universal you. How long has this world been in our psyche? I think I was eight or nine when I saw it the first time. So I waited quite a bit, and I already knew long before that the shower scene and several other things, and it still took me completely by surprise. So why is that? Why is something rewatchable when there's no surprise or suspense left? Well, in this case, for a few things that we mentioned, because the performances and specifically the interactions between performers are really fascinating. There are conversations still to be had about these topics, obviously. And in particular, with the thing we were just talking about, as our understanding of trans culture continues to evolve, for instance, and you see the legacy of this and how potentially harmful it could be in some cases. It's not uncommon to lean on the device of putting the trans person as the deviant and the other and the killer. Everything from this to Silence of the Lambs and on and on and on. And this being sort of the progenitor of all that, I think. Again, in this specific story, in this pathology, they're linking that element with mental illness mm -hmm. which it's not they're two totally separate things but in this again specific story and that's how it gets transmuted later on and misappropriated mm -hmm. well that conversation about its legacy is a perfect opportunity to mention my recommendation this time which is glenn or glinda from 1953 by ed wood which shares a couple of elements with psycho specifically those being the element of cross-dressing and this larger conversation about societal norms. I love Glenn or Glenda. I know a lot of people pick on Ed Wood because he is not the consummate craftsman. Obviously, he made movies quickly, cheaply. They are not Citizen Kane, clearly. But the thing that makes these endure is that there is so much sincerity and heart in these. Some of it is clearly campy. But it's such a bold thing, I feel like, to have made a movie so personal to him in 1953, seven years before this, 
that is essentially a heartfelt plea for tolerance for people who want to live this way. It addresses not just issues of transvestism, but also sex reassignment surgery and how people are perceived by the culture at large. There's a couple of really interesting scenarios in it where the average guy on the street is having a conversation with his friend and they come to what was then revolutionary levels of acceptance. I went back and watched it not too long ago and when you filter out the Bela Lugosi at the end of his life sadness part of it, it really is bold it seems like to me to have so thoroughly put himself out there and say, look, there is no such thing as normal. That idea is a ridiculous idea. These ideas of societal norms, everyone has something. This is my thing. You might have something entirely different. There's room for all of them. There is no such thing as an average normal person. So let's make room for all of us. I highly recommend it. It's not the greatest film ever made, but it's one of the most heartfelt and sincere pleas for acceptance and really personal films that I've ever seen. Glenn or Glenda, I highly recommend it. What about you? I came to my recommendation from a couple of angles. One, bear with me, a little mini rant coming up. Okay. So I watch too much forensic files on television. There was a recent episode, granted from a number of years ago, but still, to me, recent enough to know better. And the story centered around stalking. A woman was stalked by a coworker. What was used sort of in the teaser for the episode is a woman has a secret admirer. No, she doesn't. She has a stalker. So I was thinking about those dangerous ways that we can manipulate those words and those feelings into something that is legitimate or illegitimate. And secondly, I was thinking about the male and female romantic or non-romantic aspects in this movie. And so I thought about a film that I had watched a couple of years ago, but not completely. So I returned to it. And it is called Deep End from 1970. And it's an oddball. It really is. It sure is. (laughs) starting with the fact that it is a British West German drama. It is directed by Jerzy Skolomowski, and it stars Jane Asher and John Mulder Brown. It's set in London in this sort of grimy suburban bathhouse slash swimming pool for the neighborhood. And the two actors are co-workers at this bathhouse. And John Mulder Brown, the young man in the story, becomes obsessed with Jane Asher, his beautiful older co-worker. And I didn't realize until I was reading a little bit more about it that it was actually quite universally acclaimed. Mm -hmm. Um, The consensus was when it premiered at the Venice Film Festival in 1970 that it would have won the Golden Lion, but that prize had been suspended Mm -hmm. the previous year. And David Lynch, of all people, said, I don't like color movies, and I can hardly think about color. It really cheapens things for me, and there's never been a color movie I've freaked out over except one, this thing called Deep End, which had really great art direction. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought it to me, because I had never seen it either, and I've been thinking about it ever since then. Plus, it has Burt Kwok in a super cool cameo as a hot dog vendor. (laughs) There you go. So, to interesting possibly polarizing Mm. 
for audiences choices of Glenner Glenda from 1953 and Deep End from 1970. And that finally brings us to the end of episode 24. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook. You can just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on those venues and find us. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. I wanted to take a second and thank the people in the last couple of weeks that have shared links to the show or given us great feedback. In particular, Grindhouse Dave, as always, Tim Lego, Jane Sankner, Brian Sauer, and specifically the guys at Fuds on Film who were very complimentary about our voices. You mean this one? (laughs) We're going to start a new podcast soon called The Quiet Storm, where we're going to capitalize on that. If you're not listening to Fuds on Film, you are making a huge mistake with your life. I'm not sure what's taking you so long, but you really should. We have the benefit of only talking about movies that we truly love, so we don't get the chance very often to take movies to task that truly deserve it. But recently, in their episode where they discussed Captain America's Civil War, I was truly delighted with their treatment of that terrible film. They gave it everything it deserved. And in their latest episode about disaster films, I haven't had a better time listening to Michael Caine impressions, at least since Steve Coogan in The Trip. And... I'm not just asking you to include that because they mentioned me by name. Uh, You're welcome, Fuds on Film, for (laughs) reminding you that the swarm exists. Uh, I had the greatest day of my life listening to my name get inextricably linked forever with the swarm and Michael Caine impressions. Great, great time. Yeah, listen to the show. It's a blast. You can find them and us on iTunes. We are also on Stitcher Radio and Google Play for you Android users. If you care to leave us a review or a rating, which someone did lift us a very nice five-star rating this week. They didn't leave an accompanying review, I don't think. It hasn't turned up yet. Whoever you are, thank you for that. We really appreciate it. Anytime people take the time to leave us a rating or review. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, on our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 